Hello, and thank you for joining me for the third episode of the Transelectronic Labs podcast. Now, this episode's a little bit different because the piece I'm going to present to you was done uh, a while ago. However, it is the first piece of music that I had written specifically with the intent of bringing the listener into an altered state of consciousness. And I'm going to finish this intro, then I'm going to go and find, I know exactly where it is, the paper that I had written uh, and put out around this time in regards to my philosophy towards music. And it has evolved over the years. When I initially created my ideas, I didn't know about John Cage, although I'm sure his influence had made his way to me through the pop and electronic music I had listened to. I hadn't studied anything about microsound or granular synthesis yet. And I hadn't yet really done a deep dive into sound design as a whole. Post this writing, I had done all of that. And it was really interesting because it was almost like I went out to prove the theory that I'd, I'd, I'd put together previously. And all of this is under the, I suppose, the headline of, of the trans-electronic theory. And the trans-electronic theory really is simple. It's, uh, it's all music is sound. All sound is vibration. Since we are all energetic beings made of molecules and atoms and subatomic molecules and gluons and protons and electrons, we ourselves are also always in vibration. And every sound that you hear and every vibratory experience you have throughout your day and your lifetime has an impact on you, both physically, merely because of the fact that it's a vibration, and also emotionally, because we ourselves are vibratory beings and when you vibrate you create electricity and when you create electricity you create electrical fields and these fields can have impacts upon themselves as well as those around you so you have to be so so careful about the things that you say and the things that you think because i'll tell you you really do create your reality with what you think and if you think you're going to have something happen and you want it and you don't get in your own way, the universe will provide you and you need to listen to yourself and you need to follow through with what you know in your heart you need to do. You listen to your gut. There are neurons in your gut and I mean your, you know, your intestines and your, your whole abdominal area and, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's actually literally uh, a brain in your gut. And um, there's also a brain in your heart. So it's like a trio, you know, a trinity of, of thought. So you listen to your heart. You listen to your gut. And the thing about your gut and your gut biome is that 70% of your serotonin is stored in your gut. It's manufactured and stored in there. So if, you're, if your poop train isn't really, you know, working well, um, you're going to be so damn depressed because all your serotonin is going to be depleted. So, you know, you got to take care of the whole system, you know, the heart and the system down there and the mind, you know. And, uh, yeah, the heart and the mind. I just had a random thought about... Um, consciousness and why we seem to perceive ourselves as as being in our heads and it's and it's really because if you think about the experience of being when you talk you hear yourself in your head 
because this is a big resonant chamber and the vibrations come out and they actually start and they emanate here and this whole thing vibrates so of course you're going to associate the part of your body that's having the most visceral experience when you speak with um with being where you are and also right the ears right you're right in the center of that and your eyes right the, all of the inputs are pointing right to this like centered place in the head and it's really that that center of visceral experience that makes you feel that your consciousness is in your in your head but if if you close your eyes and you shut out that visceral that visual world and you extend your hands out you know and, and you focus on your hands you can actually feel your consciousness shift out to your hands because of where your awareness is so i don't necessarily believe that where it's it's you are in your body where you place your awareness and if you don't place your awareness in your body then you're not going to be in your body i um at a very very young age i was um i was just about 10 uh, i had a horrible accident and i'll show you my finger here um uh, for those of you that are just listening um I was about 10 years old uh i got my finger caught in a, like a steel door um in the hinge i'll tell the story um but it was because of this accident, I'll tell the story another time, but it was because of this accident and losing um, part of my finger that it really put me in my body. And, and I'll tell you how. It's because um, the skin on the tip of the finger is really tight and the nail grows kind of funny because um, part of my finger is missing. So the nail is kind of curved and it curves over the tip. And it's a good thing because the bone is right under there. And... Uh, when the tip of my finger came off, it wasn't just the flesh, it was also the bone got, got, got uh, crushed and fractured. And um, it, was, it was, yeah, so it was a mess. So when they uh, put my finger back together, they had to like, whatever they had to do to that kind of stuff, pick out the bits, I guess, and like tie it up so it was nice and tight. But anyway um so ever since then um i've really been in my body and uh i can never forget that i'm there because um no matter how relaxed i am i always feel that bit that's that's extra tight across the tip of of, of that finger and uh that finger is so sensitive it's so sensitive if if i jam it into something it um it hurts like the dickens oh my gosh Oh my gosh, it is so painful because the bone, the raw bone, you know, because the the nerve is inside the bone and the marrow. So like when that was crushed, that was like really just exposing all those those um, raw nerve endings. So yeah, it's a horrible story. I'm so sorry about that, but that's that's the reason why I'm so in my body. Um, one of the one of the many reasons. Um, Another reason why is, is uh, my dad was in Vietnam and he, he saw action. He was on the front line. He, um, he was out there and he served our country and he had to put, he had to kill the enemy. And it, it um, you know, that changes you, you know, when you have to do that. I've, I've never served, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Don't ask. I'm not answering that question. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. Um, but he did. And um, he didn't want to go. He kind of had to go. And it was because of something that happened. Um, another crazy story. I'll get into another time. But, uh, you know, I grew up the only child, only child of a, of a Vietnam vet. Uh, my mom not a Vietnam. She did not go to Vietnam. Um, she was wonderful. It was a, it was a very challenging childhood, but she made it, um, she made it special. She did. I had, I had a, I had a good childhood up to a point. I, I realized this. I've gone through a lot of, uh, therapy and a lot of, uh, personal growth since, since, uh, forever. Uh, but really since I, 
learned that I was um, a neurodivergent with uh, ADHD and a bunch of other fun stuff um, and had been pretty much all my life, never treated. Probably finding that out was like, oh man, it answered all the questions. <laughs> and it did, it really did. Um, it's really being uh, on the spectrum, not just ADHD, you know, full disclosure on the spectrum. Um, they would call it Asperger's or autism spectrum now. Um, it was life changing learning that and just seeing it so clear as day is like, oh, that's why I would get fixated on something or that's why I would go so deep into something when I got into it. It's because that's, that's what we do, you know, that's when you're on the spectrum, it's, you know, all in or nothing. And uh, when I love something and I'm super passionate about it, you can't, you can't stop me. And that's like our superpower. So I'm glad I'm in tech and technology, not Tekken, <laughs> not, not the video game Tekken. I'm into technology and uh, yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful experience to, um, you know, come through all of this and, and learn so much and to be able to like finally, oh, okay, that's why that happened. Oh, man, okay, that's why happened. And, you know, laugh at yourself about it. Like, I don't take myself too seriously. I used to take myself and everything so seriously. And I decided just like, that's not, that doesn't feel good, you know. And, uh, you know, you can't take yourself seriously and everyone else. Everything needs to be the same across the board. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy to be to be where I'm at, and, uh, yeah, so, episode three, this is a really fun, fun piece, um, it was a live one take that I did, I don't know the exact year, maybe, like, 1995, um, I do know that I was working at Sam Ash at the time, and, uh, <clears throat> what had happened was they had a bunch of um, repairs and they hadn't, no one had picked them up in like, I don't know, like two years or something like that. And what they would do is they would like all these abandoned things, all the guys in the stock room would, would get them. And um, one of the pieces that somebody had gotten was this Oberheim DX. And uh, I heard about it. I'm like, oh man, that machine's dope. So, uh, the guy that got it, I don't remember his name, I'll call him Freddy or whatever. So Freddy says, Hey RJ, you like that uh, jump machine? Like, yeah, man, that thing is dope. He's like, come by tonight and uh, you know, bring some cash. All right, Freddy. So I mean like 150 bucks. It's like mid nineties, but still, like I want the machine. And uh I get there and uh he was he was so cute. Like he was trying to sell it to me, you know. Like he wanted me to buy it. So he he had, like he had um used like WD forty on it, which is just water displacement uh Formula forty from I think Korean War, World War Two, I don't know, one of those things. It's fine to use on electronics if you were wondering. So yeah, he did that, lubed it up. And I started banging on it. I'm like, all right, I'm sold. And it was like, he's like, don't you want to like test it out more? I'm like, no, man, I, I know I want it. It's good. How much? He's like 60 bucks. I'm like, yeah, sure. And he felt bad because he thought I was going to try to haggle him. He's like, oh, okay. You, uh, you want anything else with that? I'm like, like okay, I'll take fries or whatever. No, nah, he's like, uh, I got this case, this thing. So it was like a cool kind of... Um, yeah, it was a cool, like, pressed paper case for, uh, like, waterproof paper for, like, um, like a piece of machinery. It's awesome. I still have it somewhere outside in the backyard with a, a belt sander in it. Thanks, Tony. But, yeah, so uh, I got the Overtime DX. I brought it home, and uh, lo and behold, there's no MIDI on it, so I can't sync it to anything. And uh, I had my monopoly at the time, and I just figured out how to trigger that to a MIDI clock because I was sending, um, I sampled something into my sampler, and I was sending that out through a distortion pedal into the into the monopoly. I just I think I had to get like five volts in it or something. I just turned it up real loud, and it seemed to work. So I got that triggering, and uh, I had a Korg DSS one that I was borrowing from somebody. 
and I don't remember what was making what, but I remember that DSS one was so beautiful because it was like 12 bit, um, like it was a 12 bit sampler. So it was like super grainy, not eight bit grainy, but like a little more delicate than that. So things were more intelligible, but they just sounded more speak and spelly, like, like squawk boxy. I really liked the sound of it. And it had a beautiful filter on it, a resonant filter with, uh, with the beautiful reverb, like the effects. And I remember the effects were really beautiful in that thing, the DSS one. And I had this little joystick and you could set a couple parameters up on it. And it's like, like before a chaos pad, like they had, they always had like cool joysticks on there on their things. And it was a tank. It was, God damn, it was so huge. I think it was gigantic. gigantic. Yeah, the DSS-1. So I had the DSS-1 playing something and the Monopoly playing something. And then I hit play on the on the DX. And this was freewheeling it. And the cool thing about the DX is it's got these uh, faders on the front of it. And then it's got these knobs on the back. And I found this knob, the, the pitch knob on the snare. And I was like, riding it all over the place and riding the hats around and having some fun like that. Oh, it was a blast. I did it all in one take, mixed everything together, recorded it to the tap machine that I'd gotten from, from the same Sam Ash place. Um, I'll tell that story too real quick. And then, uh, and then I'll play you the piece. So I got the, um, that place was so, uh, man, <laughs> I guess it was just crooked. You could say, and it was this one guy, I forget, I forget his name. John or something like that. He was the manager. He ended up leaving or getting fired or I don't know. But uh, so some, something happened and um, I had I was there and I had borrowed this DAT machine and I borrowed it while the guy was there. And, uh, and I didn't bring it back. He never asked me to bring it back. And um, I remember when the guy comes in and after he's gone, he's like, hey, that, that uh, DAT machine... And I had honestly had forgotten all about it. It was like I, I hadn't used it or something. Like the there was like a dog blanket on it. So I had no idea. I was smoking, smoking so much weed at the time. I'm lucky I even knew my last name at that point. Um, I said, No, nah, I don't. I, yeah, I brought it back. He's like, Yeah, you know. He's like, So much of this stiff, you know, John. You know, just you know, put on the John list. I'm like, Okay. And uh, I go home, and I'm cleaning up, and I'm cleaning up, and I found the dat machine. I was like, Oh shit. I'm like, uh, I was not, it was not on purpose. It wasn't intentional. Um, and it was old and, you know, they had so much stuff. They just wrote it off for insurance. So, um, yeah, free gear kind of happens unintentionally, totally unintentionally. All right. So, yeah. So the, the, you know what? I'm going to go find that paperwork real quick. It might even be in here a little. All right. Yeah. This is Fortunately, one of the few times I actually dated something. I was always the worst at that. I did so many tape releases, and uh, for some reason I forgot to put the year on a lot of the early ones. But fortunately that had one on it. There. So at the time, <clears throat> I was unaware of brain entrainment, and that's when the left and right hemispheres of your brain are, are working uh, together to solve a problem, but usually it's, it's in a creative way, and it's when you've been lulled into a state of um, like deep concentration, such as like a meditation, or like hyper, um, hyper performance, such as when you're in a flow state and you're like programming and you're just zipping through stuff or whatever. So I was unaware of that, of those techniques, the science of that, which I've since researched and I've got a bunch of papers to, to share if anyone's interested in. Uh, they're PDFs and they're quite scientific. 
um, they're very fascinating and they're just basically talk about like um, crowd entrainment. So like large groups of people and like how large groups of people will all uh, think the same thing. And also um, about like emergent um, design and like emergent thinking such as like with um, this was it called starlings in the sky. There's all those birds that fly together in flocks and stuff. Um, that's emergent design and like emergent um, organization. But all these things affect uh, people in large groups and stuff like that. And um, it all stems down to sound and how it's used and how you can really kind of get inside someone's head with a certain way of speaking or even just using specific sounds. So um, and the piece that I'm going to play for you after this um, is designed, it's a, it's a meditative piece. Like it's a self-referential sort of meditative piece to bring you inside yourself. Um, it, it's got some common themes in it and it, and it, you might think it's going to go one way, but maybe it never kind of goes there, but that's intentional because it wants to break your expectation. It wants to do something other than what you expect. And that's intentional. Uh, you'll see when, when you hear it. Um, all right. All the sounds on this recording are designed with psychoacoustic energy and resonant frequencies. By channeling these energies through the listener, certain states of consciousness can be realized, sometimes even an out-of-body experience. As surreal and as far out as this may seem to you, it can be achieved. You just have to be open to it. The best way to get there is with headphones and an open mind. You should be sitting in a comfortable place, a chair, a bed, a sofa, or even a lazy boy. Have your eyes closed and have your headphones on. Clear your mind and relax. The stereo image created in the headphones completely overwhelms the two halves of your brain. The subconscious part of your mind is free to explore because the other conscious part is occupied. The subconscious self starts to emerge and is drawn forward by the resonant frequencies that are pure energy. It is similar to the state of hypnosis. With traditional instruments, drums, guitar, and vocals, the brain already has pictures cataloged for the sounds. With electronic instruments, synthesizers, drum machines, and samples, the brain isn't quite sure of the sound source. Instead, it invents pictures to go with the auditory stimulation. Does the brain invent the pictures or does it channel them from a deeper understanding that the subconscious controls? Some sounds simply defy all logic. No longer do the left and right side of your brain compete for the recognition of pictures. Instead, they are bathed in complete stimulation, allowing the listener to explore their own thoughts. With the wall of what is gone, and no distinguishable icons to identify with, such as Hendrix at Woodstock, do on a solo. The listener enters a world created for them with this energy. The listener is beckoned and invited to explore the ideas and sounds that make up human thought and existence. With no common icon to identify with, the experience becomes about the listener's journey. So that's really at a heart, at its core, the trans-electronic theory, you know. All sound and frequency is vibration. We're all vibration. The sounds and music we listen to has an impact on us. And by using specific frequencies, um, we can tune ourselves and, and have positive effects. There are specific frequencies that people talk about as being for certain chakras. Uh, I think 132 is for your crown chakra, one of your lower chakras, and then 542 for an upper one. It's on the 32s. Um, I guess it's like a meridian or something. Not, I don't have all those numbers memorized, but they seem to be viable, and they also correspond to a lot of the work that I've done with um, a lot of pulse width modulation at those different... Um, frequencies such as like three hertz or uh, even lower like as a half a hertz or like one hertz um, H-E-R-T no there's no U in there so yeah with that said um, 
let's get into this. And it's simply titled uh, OBDX versus Monopoly and DSS-1. Uh, recorded live as a one take in my parents' basement. Um, had to be between like 3 and 5 a.m. or 4 and 7 a.m. I would always start at like midnight or 1 with a pot of coffee and an eighth weed and roll a bunch of joints and drink coffee and just not go to bed until the track was recorded. And uh, I did all of Sunrise like that. And um, yeah, I did a lot of tracks like that. It just, it seems, it seems like, like I can sleep afterwards. I, I couldn't sleep if I didn't finish it. And it just it needs to be good enough, you know, for the night. <clears throat> because it really is all about for me, when I'm doing something live and I've got something in the, in the Ableton session, I'll do a, I'll do a live recording very, very soon. Um, it's all about the take the, and doing it once and capturing all of the magic in that one take, all the sounds, all the explorations. And it's, it's easy when you're working on something to, to follow a lot of paths as like experimentals, experiments and to squander your creative energy on it like that without capturing it so yeah i learned how to be like turn on the faucet and turn it off but i've also got some really cool creative production techniques that um i was just messing around with ableton the other day i'm like hey can i reroute these channels like this and create this other channel that captures everything and then route that back and have it like almost like like a mini feedback thing and oh wow i can oh this is cool and just started generating a bunch of almost randomish midi uh files which is fantastic and um yeah i'll share those techniques it's um I, I figured out how to do a lot of algorithmic stuff and how to think algorithmically when uh, M lost sync and I had to kind of rethink about how I was doing everything that kind of like messed me up. And that's kind of like a little bit of the reason why it was hard for me to kind of get going after September, after I did September. Um, I've also got a bunch of stuff called uh, premonitions that stuff from before September. And uh, I've got a lot of stuff from before, but like this is September ish and it's like just darker and I think that's why um, I, it was good. I should have put it out. I don't know why I did. I was insecure. And um, I just wasn't, <clears throat> I didn't believe myself enough. And um, I wasn't surrounding myself with the right people. I got, uh, I didn't get complacent or lazy, but I had a career in technology. And at the same time, I was doing music. So... It was like working full-time at both of them for most of the 90s. And uh, I built up my own analog studio back then. Most of the gear that I have now is from then. A few, a few new pieces, but mostly it was just stuff from then. I mean, yeah, of course there's new pieces, but the big piece of my sense I had since then and all the rack mount analog gear and stuff. Um, yeah, fantastic. So yeah, this stuff is all, all the stuff I'll play next is just hardware, and this is it. I already said the name. Uh, 